This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. I'm thrilled to have my guest for today's show be Matt Ehrlichman. He's the CEO and co-founder at Porch. It's a home improvement network slash marketplace. And previously, he was the CEO of Thriva, which he built out of his dorm room at Stanford University. And also on July 31st, Porch announced plans to become a public company by the end of the year. Matt, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. So just to start off, how are you holding up during the pandemic? How are things going for you and how are things going for Porch? We are very fortunate to be in an industry you know, helping people as they move, um, helping people as they're maintaining their home, and providing software to companies that surround home services spaces. And all of those those verticals, you know, while hit hard back in mid-March, rebounded really rapidly. And now more people are moving than ever. More people are spending money on their homes, as we all are in our homes. And so at this point, uh, the business is holding up really well. Um, you know, we're, we're very excited about the results that we're seeing. Yeah, well, it sounds like you might have had a moment, an oh my God moment in March or April of this year. But from what you're saying and everything that I've read in the news, home improvement has been one of the unexpectedly bright lights in the economy, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Are you seeing that in your business? Is is that showing up to where you're actually having a great year? Yeah, very much so. The business is now growing quickly. But you are right. You know, back in middle of March, you know, home improvement, you know, the number of moves that people are making, home sales, these industries that we're very uh, connected to fell off a cliff. And, you know, no one was sure at that point, you know, how, how things were going to progress or how long it would take to recover. But around the middle of April, we saw it really was a sharp V and things bounced back very quickly by middle of June, things were fully back on track. And at this point, yes, we, we have, you know, we have went at our backs, you know, the, the, this category is set up you know really well more people are buying homes than ever in porch in our model you know we provide software to companies like home inspection companies and moving companies and other and through those relationships with these companies you know they provide us access to home buyers and so more people are buying homes and doing inspections than ever before well just backing up for people that haven't heard of porch yet what is porch Great questions. Porch is a vertical software company for the home. So we provide uh, ERP and CRM software to a variety of home services companies. So as an example, in the home inspection industry, we are the largest provider of software uh, where we provide, you know, the full tools, all the calendaring and scheduling and online booking and dispatch, routing, all the tools these companies use to run their business uh, and help them grow. Yeah, we work right now with more than 11,000 companies um, who we provide software and services to. A unique twist on, the, on Porch's model, though, is really how we price that software. So while those companies can, can pay Porch with typical SaaS fees, we really encourage those companies to pay Porch for the software by introducing us to their customer, to their home buyers, where they're able to provide Porch's moving concierge experience and then we meet these home buyers and help make their move easy. And so part of that strategy and that focus for Porch has been to meet these people who are buying homes really early in that journey, right after they've gotten an offer accepted and they just got an inspection done. So we can then help them with the most important services for their home, like insurance, where we're a licensed insurance brokerage nationwide, or moving, or TV and internet, or security. And then obviously when they're in their homes, we'll continue to help them with projects on an ongoing basis. So this- yeah, and, and you use this use this phrase ERP. What does ERP stand for? It's one of these, you know, TLAs, three letter, letter abbreviations. Uh, what, what is it? it, it it's um, just think about our software. Um, when I say ERP and CRM, I should, I could use different acronyms, but really just think about it as the software that runs all aspects of a company's operations. 
So right now, 26% of all the home inspections that happen in the US are managed through the software application that we give to these companies to, again, to help them manage all aspects of their accounting, their reporting, their communications, yeah. and all of their customer And, and that's where ERP stands for Enterprise Resource Planning, I believe is what it stands for. It's that, like, that, those are all the resources. Right. How do you do those things? And then your customers, you got to manage your customers. So customer relationship management, it's, it's funny how in these industries, these three letter abbreviations kind of emerge for these bigger ideas that are actually pretty simple to, to understand. So the other element that seems clear from your business, it's, it, it, it appears to be a, what people call a lead generation business. Would you say that's a fair characterization of part of your, part of your business model? So we, we would describe it a little bit differently because what we would want to make sure is clear to all the companies that we work with is when they pr provide a move, our moving concierge solution to their customers, we don't go and sell that home buyer out as a lead to insurance companies and moving companies and TV internet companies where you're then called by all of these companies who are trying to sell you stuff. It's, it's actually the opposite of that. Huh. What our mission and purpose is, is to make this journey people have with their homes simple. So the move is a great example where right now when people move into a new home, it's the third most stressful time in life statistically, only behind death of a family member and divorce. Right. And so we look at that as like, it's just crazy, right? Because this should be this really, you know, exciting time in people's lives, but there's so much to do, so much um, logistics and complexity that it's really stressful. And so we, our job is to make that process easier. So when these companies, when a home inspection company or a moving company or a major utility, these other industries that we work with, when they introduce us to their customer, you know, it's our job to make sure that that's a great experience and that these companies that we partner with get a lift in NPS. And so instead of it being a lead model where we sell it off as a lead, we actually have gone and done the integrations with all of the major insurance carriers, right? Where we can provide pricing right there for the consumer, be able to, to book, be able to activate that for them without them needing to talk to anybody else or so, integrations with all the major moving companies. So, so, so if you want so us to get a truck and have somebody you know, load the truck for you, we'll coordinate that whole thing end to end. Or if you want to avoid talking on the phone to Comcast, you know, we'll show you all of the different TV and internet options, you know, show you all the local, you know, the recent promotions and pricing, and we'll be able to activate service for you directly. So we just take care of all those different things for the consumer to make it easy. So it sounds like you have different ways that you, I mean, to paraphrase what you're saying, when you buy a house, you're going to inspect it to make sure it's in shape. And by helping those inspectors run their business more effectively, they return the favor by connecting you with somebody and say, hey, you want to check out Porch, it can help you with all these things you need to do in your move. And then when people come into that Porch experience, do they get just one mover recommended to them? Or it sounded like what you were saying, you could get multiple movers with pricing and ratings, and then you let the consumer decide which of those three or four options or whatever to go down. That's precisely right. Yeah, we show the consumer all of their options, all the pricing, you know, the pros and cons, and it's our job to really hold their hand to make help them make you know good choices, right, with everything they might need for so that what, new home. One thing I'm curious about with your model, and this is more of a venture capital point of view when we look at businesses sometimes, is how often does somebody use a product or a service? And it sounds like in your case, people probably move, you know. Not that often, but when they move, it sounds like that consumer has a lot of stuff they can do and work on with you. How do most people find out about Porch today? Do they find out through the inspector or somebody that you power, or is that a shift that's changing over time? No, that's exactly how these home buyers you know, find out about us. So right now, those 11,000 companies that we provide software and services to, those companies you know, work with 65% of all the US home buyers each month. So we have 65%, two thirds almost of all the US home buyers going through our systems where we have you know, insight to who is moving, who's buying homes really early, earlier than anybody else. Now, only a subset of those companies today pay us for the software by giving us full access and introductions to their customers. So right now, Porch is introduced to, as the moving concierge, um, introduced to 27% of all the home buyers in the US. But but for those people, we're connecting with them. You know, we're reaching out, we're helping them go through this journey 
So we do have this very um, large, very unique access to home buyers. And to your point, this is the moment where they are more valuable than they will ever be and that they have to purchase all of these really key services. There's such a concentration of spend, you know, right then. And, and Porch is uniquely set up to be able to help them with these key services like insurance. Yeah, well, one of the things that you're doing that I think is really interesting when people are thinking about businesses and ideas is you don't go straight to the monetization of the consumer. You're thinking about how do you add value at each step along the way. So in a sense, if people were to find out about the fees and do the work or how you're compensated, they wouldn't feel that bad about it because they're like, well, think about the hours, countless hours it would take to get quotes from three different people and to do this. So the legwork gets done through the leverage of technology to help reduce that stress that you're talking about in the moving experience. So yeah, if you're just that, in, I would, I would oh, add, go ahead. I would add just in terms of how we make money, those, those companies, those service providers, the insurance carriers, the moving companies, the TV network companies, they will pay us as we deliver a new customer, you know, to them and get, get somebody activated with their service. But the great thing is because of Porch's reach and volume, we go out to these types of companies and we'll negotiate for our customers to be able to actually save money from what they would typically, you know, go get. And so not only is it a great experience for the consumer in terms of we're going to save you time and hassle by making this whole process easy, but you can typically save a good amount of money, you know, by working with, with so you're giving them buying power. You're almost like a Costco sort of thing. You, you have buying power from getting all these people to do it. So I want to get into this in just a moment, but if you're tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I am on Launchpad right now, Sirius XM 132 Business Radio with the founder and CEO of Porch. So how do you measure or think about market share? So where are you and kind of how much headroom is there in terms of where you can grow the company? There's a few different ways that we think about market share. One is just the total available market, you know, that's in front of us and where are we today? And one of the really exciting things about, you know, the industry that we're going after, you know, we're trying to make the home easy. The home is the largest asset in almost everyone's lives. And the TAM that we have is just incredibly large. You know, right now today with our position today, it's a $220 billion TAM just in the U.S. Uh, and we're scratching the surface. You know, our, our public numbers that we've posted um, externally, we'll do 73 million in revenue this year. The company's growing at about a 50% CAGR, and we expect $120 million in revenue next year in 2021. And so while the company's growing very fast, we are just getting started is the reality as it compares to the total available market. Now, with our, with our unique strategy of providing software to companies and getting access to home buyers, We've been very focused over this last, last number of years at building out this really defensible moat where we have very significant market share in these verticals that will allow us to be able to generate more and more and more revenue over time. Uh, again, as an example, in the home inspection industry, you know, we provide the software to about 26% of the entire market you know, in that industry. So you know, 26% of all the home inspections that happen in the U.S. are managed through our software platform. Like Holy I cow! Two thirds anywhere, of like any type buyers. of home inspection. Wow, that's, yep, a that's exactly number. right. So when when okay. people buy homes in the U.S., you know, ninety percent of the time when you make an offer on a home, it's going to be contingent on an inspection, and so the offer is accepted. Home inspector is hired a day or two later to go out and spend three or four hours in that home to document everything. You know, the quality of the roof and if the hot water system is going to have any issues and all the appliances. You know. 26% of all of those home inspections are managed through our software. And do you get anonymized access to what they find in the inspection? So kind of one of these things that goes to my mind right now is, I wonder if like, if I go to Seattle versus New York City versus Chicago versus, I don't know, rural North Dakota, whose houses tend to be in the best shape? Like, do you have any sense for that or statistics that you've started to look at? Yeah, we have a lot of interesting information. Obviously, we don't, you know, sell the data or anything like that. You know, it's proprietary data, but um, we have a tremendous amount of insight. There's not a lot that we share publicly in terms of our public metrics there, but it is really interesting. Well, one thing I'm also curious about, and this is because I lived in the Bay Area for close to 25 years and moved to Seattle 
couple of years ago is, do you have a sense for who's moving where right now? Because you have so much going on, so much uh, data you're starting to collect? Yeah, again, um, yes, for sure. We see <laughs> okay. uh, where people are, where people are moving. We see the trends in terms of types of homes that they're buying. You know, we see um, uh, all these characteristics about the home, you know, from that data that nobody else has. We don't share, you know, public metrics. It's not kind of in our public, um, public stats um, that we put out, but, but again, it is, it is fascinating. And, and there, and we can really use that information to be able to just help make our experience better and better and better. The more we know about the homeowner and the challenges they're going to be having with the home, the more we can be able to personalize that experience, you know, for them over time to, to help, help make their journey easy. The, the reason that I'm curious is I am, I am highly confident that you're a proper student, stu, excuse me, steward of the data that you collect from your partners and the, the contractors you power and the people that use Porch. One of the things that I've seen unfold over time is by taking this larger anonymized data, you're actually able to talk about trends that are just pretty interesting to people in general and they help kind of the brand overall and the awareness overall. So I think Zillow has done a lot of this where they publish some of the anonymized data. And then oddly, uh, some of the dating sites, I, I forget the names of the sites that have done this, have actually gone in and they've done analysis about here's what works and here's what doesn't work, et cetera. And they look at it actually in a just a very data-driven way. Is it something that you're, uh, you know, you've decided not to do, or is it something that, and sometimes with companies, they just say, hey, we just don't have the resources to work on this right now, or I'm just curious how you think about that opportunity uh, overall. No, it's something that we certainly will do over time. We have not done it, you're right, um, today. One of the things that's different from, from some of these other companies is that over this last, say, five years, Porch has actually been very focused not in going and building a large public direct-to-consumer brand. Um, we've been really focused, actually very quietly focused, on going and you know, embedding ourselves as a great partner for companies you know, that surround this whole ecosystem and getting this really proprietary access to consumers and home buyers that are provided to us on this, this reoccurring basis. It's very predictable, very stable, because again, it's the way that companies pay for our software that we provide you know to them and so we've actually chosen over these last five years to be very quiet you'll notice we've done very little pr you know very little um you know public announcements to really keep that strategy quiet now obviously today you know given what you'd mentioned before we've announced recently that we're going public you know here and so we are now starting to be able to talk about our strategy and our stories and so you're exactly right on which is as we start to build out that PR engine, right, and create more and more awareness you know, of what we're building, you know, we'll be able to be able to provide really interesting trends, I think, you know, to- Well, and there's to also, yeah, and one of the things that, that I think is interesting with businesses in general that people don't realize or entrepreneurs don't realize, and you've been in, through some startups, so you see this, is there's this idea of cost of customer acquisition, which people refer to as the CAC. And then there's the lifetime value of a customer, LTV. Here we are doing more three-letter abbreviations. And the, the way to uh, acquire a customer changes at different points in a company's life. So the things that work really early on to get started, which people call kind of the go-to-market strategy, as a company scales and get, gets bigger, you could get to a point where it does start to make sense. Like early on to do direct to consumer, it's kind of hard. It's like, well, who do I target and what do I do? And like, it could cost me thousands per consumer that in marketing dollars just to achieve a couple. But now that you're starting to get to the scale that you're talking about right now, where you have the tools and the partnerships in these, in these areas all over the country in this coverage, you start to be able to get to a point where you could do the proverbial Super Bowl ad and it actually makes sense because people can see it and they can act on it in a way that's very different. I, I'm curious how much of that thinking about, hey, this is customer acquisition that makes sense now versus later, you've done either consciously or it's just kind of evolved and iterated from the days in which you started the company. No, I certainly think it is. It's very conscious. Uh, it's, it's absolutely part of our strategy. When we, you know, when we first launched the company seven years ago, 
we started more with a direct to consumer marketplace model. And two years in, while we were growing the company quickly, we made the, the, really the key pivot you know, in our business to become this vertical software you know, company, um, embedding ourselves and going and selling software to, to different companies you know, across these different home services verticals to be able to build this reoccurring and unique access to consumers where we have a low CAC, low cost to acquire you know, the consumer. But you're exactly right. As the business, you know, matures, you know, it evolves and you're able to expand the number of ways you can go out, not only acquire the companies, but also go acquire consumers. And so as we look forward, you're, 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 you hit it on the head. Like there are more and more and more opportunities now to be able to go and bring consumers into the platform. Uh, the, the primary though, and what we're focused on is just continuing to go and be the core software partner for these home services companies because we really do have the best in class value proposition for them. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting what you were saying. You start with direct to consumer, then you added in this, basically this functionality adding value to different people. Looking back, is there anything that you would have done a little differently in the early days of growing the business that you kind of learned? Or do you think it's kind of the path that you had to take to get to where you are today? Well, it's always easy in retrospect to kind of nitpick, certainly. <clears throat> I mean, at the end of the day, there's not, you know, we're certainly proud of the fact that we built a company and launched it seven years ago and we're taking it public, you know, right now. Just if you look at the percentages, you know, it's, it's hard to do, um, there's no doubt. That said, yes, if I were to start it all over, you know, the business that we had built and what we had pivoted into five years ago to be a vertical software company, you know, I would have started with that, you know, day one. This strategy for us has really unlocked incredibly strong unit economics, you know, tremendous differentiation, and most importantly, really clear defensible moats that gives me great confidence of our ability to grow the business for a very long period of time. You know, we're not um, dependent like we, we would have been in the early, early days of having to go and compete with other companies to try to get access to consumers. We really do have this unique strategy and this unique flywheel. <clears throat> and so that, that is one of the reasons that we're feeling very comfortable and confident about taking the company public right now which is, um, which is we are set up well to be able to grow for an extended period of time. Yeah, well, one of the things historically, when you look at the evolution of web-based consumer businesses, I, early on, I was asking you the lead generation question. There were a lot of companies that got started with this idea of lead generation, and then Google changed their search algorithms so that they could actually vacuum up the value there because if somebody is Googling home inspection, et cetera, you're, you know, do you want to be competing with that and then reaching out to the inspectors, et cetera. But there was a time when that was the business that, that made sense. And the other thing that I've got to believe has changed is the willingness of a lot of these smaller businesses to use web-based software or mobile-based software to manage their business that they didn't do before. So the proliferation of smartphones and sufficient, reliable bandwidth that they would feel comfortable using your scheduling tools and your ERP tools and the different things that you're talking about. Do, do you have mobile apps that they actually use and rely on as well, or is it all web-based, the software? No, we provide um, a variety of tools to the companies that we work with, you know, whether they're, you know, on their laptop and, and you know, web-based, whether they're, they're, you know, have an app on their phone. You know, we, we provide them all the tools they need to, again, run every aspect of their business. So regardless of what, what medium they want to be, uh, be engaged. Yeah, well, that's definitely a lot of work to do it. And as you were saying, it, it definitely builds the moats over time. So, well, one, one thing I'd like to get into, we're going to need to take a short break in a minute here. But when we come back from the break, I'd like to get into the considerations about what's involved with going public, uh, these special purpose acquisition companies, also known as SPACs, uh, have really started to accelerate this year and to get into that and then also hear about your path to entrepreneurship. So we're going to take a short break. I'll continue my conversation with Matt Ehrlichman, the CEO and co-founder at Porch. We're back. I'm Rob Conyveer. This is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. 
I'm Rob Conivier, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. I'm joined today remotely via Zoom by my guest, Matt Ehrlichman. He is the CEO and co-founder at Porch. It's a home improvement network. And before the show, we were, excuse me, before the break, we were talking about his business, how he built the business, the value it provides to consumers, different people in the business. And it's been growing quite rapidly. And on July 31st, they announced their plans to go public later this year uh, using what is to this date been an unusual process, but has started to become an increasingly mainstream way of taking a private company into the public markets via SPAC. Matt, could you talk about the process of a SPAC, what does SPAC stand for? And we can go from there. Happy to. So first to help with the acronyms, uh, SPAC um, is SPAC, which is a special purpose acquisition company. So one of the ways that that companies like mine are able to now go public. Previously, you'd be looking at a traditional IPO or perhaps sell the company or stay private. Those were generally the paths to choose. Uh, many companies like mine want to be able to, to take the company public, but you know, are trying to, um, trying to find a more efficient and faster way to be able to do so. Um, SPACs are a mechanism that have actually been around, but has really become much, much more popular over the course of this last year or two, where um, companies that are called blank check companies, companies that don't have any assets or, or you know, any op operations, you know, are created, are taken public, raise, raise a, a you know, significant chunk of money, and then go and try to find companies like a porch, um, who you can then merge with to bring that private company public through that merger. And so you might hear of a a SPAC IPO, um, as an example, that simply is just referencing a way for a private company to be taken public through through a merger, you know, with with uh, with a company. Um, so so candidly, <laughs> I did not even know that much about you know SPACs as a way to go public a year ago. You know, Porch was at that point in time, you know, looking at taking our company public, but likely at the end of 2021 through a traditional IPO. You know. Before Porch, I had built a couple of companies and sold the first one and helped take the, the second company public. And so that was the path that I had in my mind is to go public through a traditional IPO. You know, we were doing well, growing quickly. However, late last year, late in 2019, you know, Porch met um, a couple of different SPACs um, and through those discussions began to just understand the pros and the cons of that mechanism and that tool to take the company public. Uh, the group so you started these moving. conversations a year, and these conversations started a year ago, it sounds like, pre-pandemic, where you started to get to know some of these organizations that you could merge with in order to go public. That's exactly right. November and December of 2019 is when we really started those conversations and, and became more aware, and you're exactly right. We are able to uh, meet the group that we moved forward with, Property Tech Acquisition Corp., in person, you know, just before the pandemic. So in February, they came out to our offices and were able to meet with the team. And it was pretty clear quite quickly that Porch was just an excellent fit, you know, for them and that they were a good fit for us. And, you know, we moved forward uh, fairly quickly with putting together this merger. So, you know, a couple months ago, uh, we announced both that merger to take Porch public as well as you know, we uh, went out to investors, public investors, to raise what's called a pipe investment. Basically, where public investors commit to investing, you know, in the go-forward merged entity. And so there was just tremendous demand, you know, for what company, what, what Porch is doing. Uh, we started with a fifty million dollar, you know, pipe that we were targeting to raise, and ended up being upsized to a hundred and fifty million dollar pipe, and was still significantly oversubscribed. Um, where now, in addition to the $172 million that Property Tech has that they'd raised through their IPO, we also will bring in another $150 million of financing you know, through that pipe. Net, the reason why, to your question, Rob, the reason why we're going public this way is we're going to be able to be public a year earlier and through that process raise a significant amount of capital uh, that will allow us to be 
aggressive and, and play offense and really go try to build, you know, build something big and, and, and go after our vision. One of the things that I'm curious about with SPACs is, are there different uh, public comment guidelines between SPACs and traditional IPOs? Because I guess ultimately, you're not a public company right now. You're just, you're going to be acquired. So it seems like it's a very different set of rules as opposed to the acquiring company probably can't talk about it much at all. Well, a couple of things I would note. One, I wouldn't even say that we're going to be acquired and that Porch and our existing shareholders will own the majority of the go-forward company, right? So it really is, um, the SPACs are set up to be able to identify high-quality companies that are, you know, growing quickly, that are the right dynamics to, and are ready to be a public company. Um, and we're, you know, merging with that entity in order to be able to get Porch public. But for us, the, the outcome is very similar, you know, as if we were to take the company public through a traditional IPO. You know, it's a way for us to be able to capitalize the company just like an IPO. Um, so the, the dilution, the capital ending up at publicly traded on the NASDAQ, all of those are, are almost identical, actually, in terms of, you know, going public through a traditional IPO. Uh, the, the benefit for us is time, you know, that, that you don't have to do everything. We don't have to be SOX compliant day one. You have a year to be SOX compliant, just as an example, when you go public through a merger, versus a traditional idea. Well, we're, we're definitely very three-letter abbreviation. <laughs> yes, today. yes, so we are. <laughs> Sox is Sarbanes-Oxley. I believe that was the act that was passed. I don't know, has it been 15, 20 years? It's probably been a while, uh, which basically changed the regulatory guidelines for financial reporting and other types of compliance with public companies to avoid some issues that had happened in the past. Precisely, so you, right? You get so it's just some, a lot of work for our time, team, yeah. a lot of work for our accounting team that we get to just, just defer, you know, that we can be able to do that here over the course of this next next year. So it, it's, just a, it's just a simpler, more efficient way at the end of the day for us to be able to get the company public and get it fully capitalized um, so we can continue to, to, to move forward. Yeah, it's one of the things that I remember from when I first came into the venture capital industry in the late 90s and joined New Enterprise Associates. The senior partners there explained to me that an IPO was not a liquidity event. It was just the initial time that the shares of the company were available to the public. But you would have companies that instead of going public and having a market cap of half a billion to a billion dollars or two or three billion dollars, they'd go public and they would have a company valuation of 100 million, 200 million, maybe occasionally less than 100 million, and they'd raise 20 million dollars. And it looked a lot like, ironically, what a typical Series A looks like today, but they were able to tap into the public markets. And it feels like this wave and everything that's happening and really record-breaking amounts of money that are coming into SPACs as a way to take private companies public is a bit of back to the future in terms of allowing public market investors, individuals to actually participate in a lot of these companies that before all of the equity gains would be in the private markets. I think that's right. And I, I don't think this trend is going to um, slow down, you know, either. You know, again, the reality is there are, you know, there are real advantages to going, up, going public through a SPAC you know, versus a traditional IPO. And so I think now that there's more awareness from, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, like myself, you know, who are thinking about their options, <clears throat> I think SPACs are clearly now in the consideration set for what's going to be the yeah. most efficient way to be able to get the company public and to raise money. Well, you're in a lot of ways, you're towards the beginning of this wave because as an investor, we had heard about SPACs for probably a decade. They'd been around for a while, but maybe to put them uh, in, a, in a way that's easy to understand, we just thought they were just kind of weird or unusual and only companies that had to go down that route would go down that route and then there wasn't as much performance. But it's definitely changed. It's changed a lot. And you can see companies that have really worked out that have gone this route have benefited people that have come in. What was it like for you? Because if you were starting to evaluate this a year ago and getting to know these people, you had to know that it was a non-traditional route. Like now it's, it's almost, I wouldn't say conventional wisdom, but it's considered much more mainstream. But a year ago, there had only been a couple of companies that had gone down this route. So what was it that you know, you went through kind of your decision-making process, your management team's decision-making process to say, hey, 
we're actually gonna put in time and take this seriously because I think that it makes a ton of sense for our shareholders. Yeah, I think you, I think you are right. Again, a year ago, you there was much less known, you know, in my world, you know, in the, in the tech entrepreneur world and tech CEO world, um, there was less discussion, less press, you know, around that being an option. So it's just just less clear. <clears throat> at the end of the day, for us, it was you know math. You know, you could look at the the pros and cons, what the cost would be, you know, the dilution impact versus going public through a traditional IPO. And it, you know, the pros outweigh the cons at the end of the day, getting public that much earlier, being able to take advantage of that capital to be able to acquire certain companies that, that we're going we're gonna to want to acquire, you know, um, create more value than it costs us. And so, yeah, and, and I think that. that's and, and one the of the keys is, that you were, I think you see that here, which is you see more and more to your point, more and more of these really great, well-known companies, you're choosing that path. And so I, I don't think this is, you know, a short-term trend. Again, I think this is something that will continue. Yeah. It's interesting because in Silicon Valley, there was definitely, and I should say in the tech ecosystem in general, almost an aversion or a pride to remaining a private company for a long time. But when you're a private company, it's harder, as you were mentioning, to acquire companies. And also, you have people that have been with the company for, I don't know, five years, six years, seven years, where they just, they need liquidity. They need, they don't want to go for 20 years and not be able to buy a house or pay for their kid's education. And it's just such an important part of the compensation. So there are a ton of benefits to going public. So, so this must be a very exciting time for you right now to, to put it mildly. It is a fun time. It's a fun time for, you know, the team you go through, um, you're, you're starting a business to try to solve a real problem in the world. You grind away, you have to make a bunch of, you know, hard decisions as you go and, and, and you believe you're going to be able to find your way, you know, to, to, uh, to success, but, um, you got to go do it. You never know, you know? And so, to your point, this is not the end of the road at all, not by any means. You know, frankly, we feel like we're just getting started. And you know, like I talk about to my team, this is simply a, a moment where we're raising capital. And yes, we're public. And yes, we'll now be able to buy companies you know, more effectively. And yes, you know, at some point, people, if they want to sell some stock, can. But myself and my team, we're rolling virtually all of our equity you know, forward. Um, and because we believe, like we sincerely believe that you know we're going to be able to go and take what we have right now and build it into something you know much more meaningful and so it, it is it is an exciting time you know for us because we'll just have that much bigger and better of a platform uh, and balance sheet in place to be able to go do so so if you're just tuning in i'm rob conyveer and this is launchpad on business radio sirius xm 132. my guest today is matt ehrlichman he's the ceo and founder of porch so you grew up in Seattle, the company's based in Seattle, and I'm guessing that you have seen a lot of changes. And you look at Seattle today, obviously people think about Amazon and Microsoft, but then you look at companies like Accolade and others that have gone public this year, it's really become an economic, a tech ecosystem powerhouse. And I'm just curious about how you've seen the evolution of the ecosystem from growing up in Seattle and you know, where people might be thinking about, do I go work for Boeing or do I, you know, do I go work for Microsoft to what it's like today? Well, I think that um, you saw hints of where Seattle is now, you know, even, you know, decades ago, you know, as, as you know, Microsoft would be the, the, certainly the best company to point to. But I think typically what it takes to have an ecosystem built is a certain and can be a relatively small set of really anchor companies, you know, that are able to attract in so much talent and so many people, which gets that flywheel spinning where you have more people, which can now start more companies, which attracts more capital, you know, and you produce better and better quality employees and leaders of businesses. And so I really do credit, you know, credit Microsoft, you know, and what was built there, just an incredible company, obviously, with really, you know, helping to spark it. And then on top of that, you did have Amazon you know, um, move here, just another incredible company. And I think from that, and just from all of that momentum that was created in this region, you do have this, um, this ecosystem now that I'm really proud to be a part of. And I think that most of the Seattle CEOs, tech CEOs that I know, you know, well, 
are proud to be a part of. Now, we know that there's a lot still to do in the city. There's lots of opportunities to make it easier for the next wave of Seattle tech startup CEOs to be able to capitalize their business. Um, and there's lots of challenges, I think, for the city to solve, you know, holistically. Um, but, um, but it is fun to be able to be a part of that, part of that, um, that journey and part of the momentum that we're seeing, you know, in the city. And every time we see the next, you know, Seattle, you know, IPO, you know, it's, I think there is some pride just from the ecosystem, you know, uh, there's, there's certainly a tight community, you know, where people are pulling for each other. Well, one of the things I'm, one of the things I'm curious about is when you were growing up, what was the snapshot of what it looked like when you were in high school? And at what point did you start to think about, I want to start a company. I want to build something that can be big and significant like these, these tech icons in the area. So, you know, interestingly, I've been an entrepreneur for, you know, almost all of my life. I started, you know, selling things, you know, various kinds of stands on the street. When I was in grade school, I started my first real business when I was 14 years old um, in high school where I built a uh, sports camp for kids. It was multi-sports and it started as one, you know, location and session and over a six year period of time had sessions, you know, locations across Western Washington, very, very large number of kids coming each year, like a very legitimate, you know, um, sports camp franchise. Um, it built that up, you know, in my sophomore year in, in college, wanted to go build the next company, which was a software company for camps is what it started as. So that was the first, before there was SaaS or software as a service, you know, we built web-based web software to be able to help, you know, camps. And then we expanded that to help all kinds of event organizers. And so, you and know, this and is I, all I, in high school? The summer camp was in high school and then sophomore year in college, I started the software company and so it's and, been kind, what of, kind one of revenue thing to were the these next. companies doing say yeah. again what kind of revenues what kind of revenue were these companies doing well the that software company that i had built starting in college it went it went well we, we, we largely bootstrapped it we sold it for a little more than 60 million dollars you know six years later wow. um, and so wow. it's gone okay. i've been i've been very fortunate you know credit to the the people and the teams that i've worked with you know along the way but it's been a good run, uh, certainly. And then after that, you know, company, we sold it. I was the chief strategy officer of the acquirer. And we built that company from 65 million in revenue to 420 million in revenue. And we took that company public through a traditional IPO about nine years ago. And so it has been, okay. a, it's been an interesting- And that was Active Network? Precisely yeah. right. Yeah, precisely right. And so it, it's been an interesting entrepreneurial journey, kind of going from, you know, building one business to the next to the next. Um, I've never- um, interviewed for a job as it, you know, it would be the fun fact, right? I've never, um, uh, I've just been building things along the way. And so for Porch, um, you know, it is, you know, it's my last run. It, you know, this is for me, the whole purpose to go and do one more was to see if I could go and build a truly great legacy company, you know, build, build uh, one of those next, you know, real, you know, meaningful Seattle companies. And so, yeah, we'll see how far we can take it, obviously, but, but it's been a good start. Yeah, so it looks like you took a little diversion yourself to the Bay Area to attend Stanford and got a few degrees in engineering. Did you go straight back to Seattle as part of this? It was it, and was that just a, I want to go to Stanford, amazing school, have a great experience, but I want to come back? Or how did that decision-making process work about where to locate? Yeah, I, I did want to go to Stanford um, uh, for a you know a number of reasons, but it was it, I had aspired to go there you know when I was you know th throughout high school, you know when you're down in Stanford, especially in that time, you know around, around the year 2000, you know there's you know if you're not starting a, a technology company, you know I felt like you were you were missing something. There's a lot of activity. Yeah, something's wrong with time. you. Yeah, yeah, it was not unusual, yeah. I will say, to stop out of school like I did to go start that that first software as a service company. Um, but yeah, Seattle for me is home, you know? And so I knew, you know, after college that I wanted to come back up to Seattle. Um, you know, I love it, the Northwest. It is, um, it's, you know, where I want to, and am raising my children. Um, so that, that really is why I returned. I always knew that I would want to be back here. 
Well, talking about that, it's, it's something that I've thought a lot, a, lot, a lot about during my life and have thought a lot more about over the last two, three years is I reached a point in my life where I, I said, I want to live where I want to live. And the Bay Area is a great place. There's no question about it for all the reasons that people like it. But it wasn't my first pick of where I wanted to live. And I see a lot of people struggle with this dilemma of where do I live? Do I live somewhere for opportunity or do I live somewhere because of family, friends, ecosystem, environment? And I'm curious how you think about it when you give people advice. So, I mean, clearly you've made your choice. It was like really clear. I'm going to go do this great education, come back to Seattle. But got to believe now that you're building this level of success, people come and they ask you for this advice like, hey, should I base my company here or there, et cetera? What do you, what do you tell people? How do you counsel them? Yeah, I do, I do um, believe firmly that you know people can uh, people can and should live where they want to live. You know, we all get one you know one life. I do think it depends on what type of company you know you're building. Like the Bay Area has very unique characteristics about it, especially for first time entrepreneurs. You know, there's just more capital there than others, and so if you're going to go build a direct to consumer you know tech you know property. There is talent that has more experience and there's money. However, however, there are real cons as well. Like it is just dramatically more expensive, taxes are harder. Um, and so it, for me, I think that it is important for people to, to really um, choose where they want to be and, and go into it knowing that, you know, it may look from the outside like startups are overnight successes and that it's all smooth sailing. But it's not like it's a it's a grind, you know, and it's, you know, late nights and hard work. And so, you know, and it's going to take longer than people expect to go and be able to, to build something, even if you are successful. And so you, you want to not miss out on your life, you know, while you're going and you're building that that company. I actually also think that um, there's been a big change with COVID, too, you know, in this in this, um, you know, in this world. One of the real silver linings is people can be just about anywhere right now. And I don't think that trend is going to go away. I think that people, you know, can, uh, the norms have changed here where, you know, interacting with over, over video calls is now something I do all day, all day long, every single day. And we're hiring people for key roles that are in different locations around the country because that's how we're interacting and it's working great. Um, so I do think there will be a shift where more and more people can go, be where they want to be, live where they want to live, still be able to raise money and that they have the right idea and the right culture and the right mindset. Um, and they can be able to recruit team members from a variety of places, you know, if they want to. And I think that that is a trend that you know, will be a long-term trend. Yeah, I really wonder what it's like for people at the very earliest stages of company formation right now, because once you have the core pieces of the company or you've got it going and it's, it's like a snowball running along, you know, the, 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 the changes have been pretty significant for people, but you at least have some, hopefully some level of culture and common threads to be able to build from kind of like a snowball. But I'm curious in today's environment, whether you have, you know, a sense for, is it still best to start a company in a place like a Seattle or a Bay area or New York, or is it something you truly can start from North Dakota if you wanted to? I think North Dakota might be hard. I think you're once once the role returns back, it's going to you're still going to want to be able to meet with investors, particularly early on. So I think you know starting a company where you're going to have an ecosystem that's there where you can go and be able to raise capital, build relationships with investors. I think that there is something to being in person. That said, I do think it is increasingly less important. I think more and more investors are wide open now to meeting over video and that's just what we're all doing. And so I do think the norms are changing where it will be less important, you know, as, as we go forward. I do think in the early days, I agree with you, it is good to be able to spend more time in person with your team to build that core culture and value set. And then once you get that core established, you know, it, it just spreads as you hire new people. But there, I will say there are lots of counterpoints. Like there's some really impressive companies that have been built that have been virtual from day one. And so if you're going to do that, I just think you need to be very conscious about, you know, blocking out time to 
to spend with your team and to be able to spend working on the culture because it is, um, is there it's a, critical, is there a, it's critical yeah. to the success of the company. Is there a specific company that you're thinking of or a couple companies you're thinking of that, that have gotten started as pure virtual companies? You know, one of the things that, that I've seen is even the companies are getting started today, there's much more people that have known each other for some period of time. And I just wonder what it's like if you're kind of setting out of college for the first time, do you end up doing it with college classmates, et cetera? I wonder whether there'll be a window of innovation here or if there's going to be a short window where it's just been tough for two or three years to really get started if you're not in one of those ecosystems. You know, I think that uh, we see more and more startups as I'm in the, you know, in the tech community that are talking right now about what to do with their with their existing office space or brand new startups that are, you know, you know, getting counsel on, hey, should I, should I get any office space at all? You know, and I think, well, certainly right now at this, this exact moment, you know, the council is no, like, don't get office space at all today. You know, porch, we virtually don't use our office space, you know, and it's just, you know, just waste the expense at this, at this point. And so, and I think that's going to, you know, last here for quite some time. I do think, again, it will evolve where more and more companies, you know, will be remote and have, you know, shared workspaces so they can get together and bring the team together, whether it's once a month or whatever it is. But I think it's going to be fascinating. I really do to see just how, like what happens with commercial real estate, what happens with so many of these different industries that have relied on, you know, how things were. And I just, I believe COVID really is accelerating the way work happens by a good decade or two, you know, really. Like I think we're shortcutting this, what was going to take a very long time to change. And so I, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see you know, where that goes. But Porch is a good example. The only a subset, a, a relatively small subset of our entire team is actually in Seattle. You know, we had offices in a variety of locations, but some of those offices, like our office in Dallas, you know, we decided a number of months ago that we're not going to come back to the office. Like it's actually working better as people are you know working from home. You were able to now hire people from any location, which makes it easier on our recruiters. You're just going to see companies like us that are taking advantage of this moment to really move the company forward. And uh, I think it's going to be a a net positive. Yeah, well, one thing's for sure. COVID definitely scrambled the decks for deck for startups. And it's really exciting to see how companies like Porch are thriving in this environment. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. No, it really was a pleasure. Happy to be here. And for people that would like to keep up with you, I'm sure people can figure out how to porch and find porch, but for people who would like to keep up with you, do you have a Twitter presence or something people can follow? Yes, if people want to learn more about porch, you can go to theporchgroup.com. We have a variety of brands, a variety of companies, and you can learn more about what we're building holistically. And then following okay. me directly is at Matt Ehrlichman um, on, on Twitter. Great, thanks again, Matt. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. And you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.